0: How do you become the person you want to be, especially when your family wants you to become someone else? That's the question Jeff Staple had to ask himself when navigating his education and early career. Despite opposition on the home front, he not only forged a successful path of his own choosing, but helped create the streetwear industry that we know today. Jeff learned his craft the way a lot of people do now. Learn from what you need, from wherever you can, and move on. Always challenging the norm, when his college professor told him he couldn't use the campus silkscreen equipment to print t-shirts, Jeff didn't take no for an answer. He broke into the school at night and did it anyway. He brought that same combination of resourcefulness and resolve to everything he did thereafter. Whether it was shaping an innovative retail experience at the now-defunct Reed Space, or collaborating with Nike on what is still one of the most hyped and sought-after shoes ever, the Pigeon Dunk. By the way... Don't worry, he made his mom proud after all. My name is Jeremy Kirkland and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Jeff Staple, founder of Staple Design. Jeff and I discuss his contributions to the streetwear movement, why he feels a t-shirt is the most powerful medium we have to communicate with, and how to survive in a culture predicated on the idea of what's next. Well, Mr. Jeff Staple, yes. it is an absolute pleasure to talk with you, and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you. Um, a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. A couple things I feel like I have to talk to you about, mm-hmm. just because your story, not only do I think it's really, really inspiring, but it's like you are the epitome of blowing up, but also someone who has never like left the scene and has mm-hmm. managed to continue to build a career that is unfortunately based around hype and like you know as we'll talk like we know that hype goes away but you have managed to basically stay in this scene mm-hmm. forever and and become no i'm serious and become this you know not just someone who's shaping it but a voice and also like mentor to other people mm-hmm. and so it's a huge pleasure to talk to you thank you man and uh i mean i'm i'm going to have to talk to you about the pigeon dunk which yeah. i know you've talked to everyone yeah. about but uh before we we dive it. in
1: it's <laughs> And I I already know some listeners are like rolling their eyes like again but you know what there's there's a person out there that doesn't know what happened. I promise you there's there's someone who's yeah. going to listen to this who's like
0: who is Jeff's they're like googling right now on right. their phone. <laughs> Jeff Staple. Okay. Yeah. But um first off, you're originally from New York?
1: I'm from Jersey. You're from Jersey? Yeah, I was born in Jersey. Um went to high school so from birth to high school was Jersey. Mhm. Um in a sp- small community called Monmouth County, um, Marlboro High School, very, very suburban and very white. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like my, uh, my high school had um, 1,600 kids. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And uh, out of the, the ranking, you know how they rank students by your academic you know, ability? I was num- literally number 800 of 1,600, and I had a 2.0 GPA. So I was like the most... Average fucking (laughs) academic kid. My SAT scores, this is embarrassing (laughs) to admit. I got an 1100 on my SATs, 550 math, 550 English. Like I was so just middle of the road. You're even Steven. Yeah, super even. (laughs) Um, And just to give you an idea, out of the 1600 kids, there was three Asians. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, I was one of three Asians. And the other two were like played the clarinet, played the piano, got like a 1600 on the SAT, you know, like went to Ivy League school. And everyone's like, how come you're not smart? (laughs) That's horrible. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you feel that sort of pressure? Because the like you were saying, the other Asian kids are were crushing it. Yeah. And also for my family, you know, like they Mm -hmm. emigrated here strictly for the purpose to have me be an American citizen. The first American citizen of like the entire clan, you okay. know, the first born in America, the first to go to college and if all goes well, the first to become a doctor and oh, the first of to make six figures. You know, yeah. like that's the American dream and mm-hmm. the first to have a white picket fence and a Volvo. That's your future, yeah. <laughs> and so there was a lot of pressure like, you know, I lived with my parents and my grandparents like in the same house, which is very common for Asians like generationally to just all be under the same roof. Where did, where did your parents immigrate from? Um, my dad's from China. My mom's from Hong Kong. Gotcha. So they're both Chinese. But my mom flew here with me like in her tummy, like strictly so that I could have a passport. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very strategic. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was just a, it's kind of a common thing back then in that generation. Because if you, if you didn't have a U.S. passport, you were sort of like really second-class citizen of the world like mm. it was hard for you to get around the world you know if you didn't have that blue passport um this is you know um hong kong was um just migrating back to being under chinese rule right right so like and china and the us were like not all that friendly back then you know um so it was definitely like a gold pass to have that passport and um that won't happen again you're good <laughs> um yeah, it was definitely like a very sort of prestigious thing to have a US passport and so they sh- flew here just to do that. Wow. Yeah. So
0: and so you're living with your grandparents and your parents mm-hmm.
1: and there's a bunch of academic
0: pressure to sort of be the best, be smart. Yeah. Uh what did your parents say when you're just kind of like, here's my here's my grades, here's my life? I think they kind of
1: in all honesty a little bit like gave up on me. Like, you know, by sophomore year you sort of know if your kid's going to be like going to Harvard or Yale or not, right? Sure, it's it's hard to turn around like a two point GPA to be a four point six with AP classes like that. That turnaround doesn't really happen, <laughs> and I wasn't really I wasn't really exhibiting any other marketable skill. Like I wasn't. On the varsity team or anything like that. You You didn't play sports? I did. I played tennis and I was pretty good at tennis. I was in the USTA and at one point I was ranked number 13 on the East Coast of the the USTA. There's some stuff there. And I don't know if you remember Michael Chang. Yes. Okay. So, like, my mom was like, okay, you're not going to be a doctor, but you're going to be Michael Chang. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was tennis camp, tennis lessons, like, tutors, like, everything to try to get me to be Michael Chang. Because I wasn't going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Tennis culture, though. I mean, that... Because there was that time, it, it was all about, like, Martina Hengis
0: and Steffi Graf yeah. and uh, Pete Sampras uh-huh. and Andre Agassi.
1: Like, yep. that was kind Hot, kinda, hot yeah. time for tennis. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. It was... A, a, your, what you're talking about is probably one half step in the future of where I was, which was more okay. like Boris Becker. Oh. John McEnroe was still playing. Yeah. Yvonne Lendl. Those were like the gods and Michael Chang was like this come up Chinese kid that like no one could figure out how to crack that guy because he was just so resilient, you know? Yeah. Um and so I was really good at tennis. I had like the fastest serve as a thirteen year old. I had a one hundred mile per hour plus serve as a thirteen year old. Holy shit. Yeah. And uh but that didn't work out either. <laughs> I basically I remember cracking a racket over my knee and yeah. I was like, fuck this sport. It was just too much like I didn't like the um the one the one-on-one aspect of it i liked team sports better like basketball and i played hockey i played hockey at nyu actually um so i liked team sports i didn't like the fact that it was just you and i don't know if you know but you actually can't communicate with your coach while you're playing what with tennis in tennis in pro tennis you have a coach yeah but you can't like t- give me five minutes let me talk to my coach you can't do that in tennis oh you can't like say no. time out in fact, some pros have gotten in trouble because they've been like there's been like hand signals between the coach and the player. Oh, so it's not even because it the game doesn't make for it, it's against the rules. It's against the rules. Yeah. Oh Lord. And I didn't like that. And I'm I'm seeing basketball like they get to talk to their coach, you know, <laughs> like this guy coaches me. Why can't I talk to him? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. So yeah, so it wasn't um they lost hope, I think. And, you know, I think they were just probably by sophomore junior year of, of high school, they were gonna be happy. If I went to a college, okay, right? um, and if I just became maybe like an accountant or like yeah, an accountant or a bookkeeper, I think they're, yeah, there you yeah. go, <laughs> so a respectable you yeah. know mid I, to high earning salary. Yeah, I think they had very low expectations for me. They're like, if Jeff just manages to survive, it'll be fine.
0: <laughs> are they are they still around? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I'm. I'm assume they're pretty proud of you now. Yeah, um, I mean, we're sitting in an office that has your name and legacy
1: like (laughs) all over it yeah it's like a museum (laughs) yeah it's amazing um no my mom is really proud um i actually lost touch with my dad after high school we had a falling out Mm. um, and i didn't end up speaking to him for like a good decade like no conversation yeah and recently we reunited a bit and we try we're trying to reconcile things but it's like it's like a once a year thing now Mm. so i i don't really have a relationship with my dad right now i'm trying i'm working on it
0: who extended the olive branch if you don't
1: mind um he did but only when i started to get famous which made it worse uh you know like imagine like 10 years of no contact from your father Mm -hmm. and then you get an article written up in a in china like a chinese newspaper wrote an article on me Mm -hmm. and then he reaches out and says oh i saw you're doing really well congrats it's like what if I didn't get written up, like would you have called ever right, so it's even it's like salt in the wound, you know, yeah, yeah, so um, so yeah, but i I was really close with my mom, and she's super proud, that's awesome, yeah, yeah, family is
0: um the best and worst thing, it's yeah, especially as you get older, I think you you realize, and I won't go down this rabbit hole too much, but like you realize that your parents like didn't always know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And even though like the intentions are good, Mm -hmm. they screwed up a lot.
1: Yeah. And and on a similar note, like you realize that, you know, these once a year meetups that I try, I try to have with my dad. Right. Yeah. You realize you sit down, you have dinner and you're, you're having this conversation and it's, it's no more interesting than a conversation you'd have with a stranger on a plane. Right. And you leave and you're just like, he's my dad. So you're supposed to have this bonding thing but Mm. you don't you're just sort of like cordial right and and then you ask yourself like well philosophically why do i have to bond with this person like if you break it down like almost like a scientist like really cold like he shot out a sperm created me but like that's it like why who says we have to play catch and you know like have these bonding father-son moments you know what i mean we're just two organisms (laughs) <laughs> that's, it's very likely. It's just as likely that we don't get along that we, than that we do get along. Yeah, but I think people romanticize the father thing, and so I and it hits me because I always leave, and I'm like, damn, why can't we really bond instead of talking about the weather and like traffic? Yeah, <laughs> it, that's like so much of of cultural. You know,
0: like, everyone has to have this amazing relationship with their parents, and everyone has to have, you know, yeah, like you were saying, to play catch. I mean, I don't know where that came from. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting
1: or something like that. It's like like a Hallmark greeting card marketing campaign. Yeah,
0: (laughs) and it's like, well, relationships are dynamic, right? you know? Like, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. I mean, you look at how, you know, I I can't believe this is, like, even something, like, I'm discussing, but you look at how it affects, you know, relationships with the opposite sex or the same sex or, Mm -hmm. or... you know, marriage and, yeah. and like, yeah, like this shit is not smooth sailing. Right. And, but the weird thing is I feel that even if you kind of shun family or you shun like best friends or personal friends, you, your body or something, at least speaking from personal experience, it's like, I feel like I, I got to do something. Mm. Do you, I mean, do you ever feel that? Like, do you feel yeah. like, well, cause even then, like you were discussing, like, why can't it be like this? Yeah,
1: I think, I tend to think that's societal pressures because you are exposed to the norm of what it's supposed to be like to have a good relationship. And so you leave thinking like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. No matter what, you know, it's like, um, it's like buying the diamond for your, for your significant other fiance, whatever. Right. Right. And like someone said, what is it? You have to spend like two years of your salary. Six months. salary. Oh, six months. Two years, I think is the office.
0: that's what michael scott does okay
1: so six months of your salary on a ring right and so you could a prescribe to that rule and do it right or b you could be like no fuck that rule i'm not playing by those games yeah right but you still acknowledged it and it's still a thing like that grinds on you even if you're anti it you're like I will not let society tell me how much to spend on a ring. A diamond will not represent my love for my woman. It's true. It's true, but it's you still like you gave it that much energy in your life. Yeah, you know. So it's like the same thing with with the thing I have with my dad. Wow. Yeah, and it's funny. My friend, my friend Asa has like this theory that she's met a lot of dudes in streetwear, Mm -hmm. and she said every streetwear owner has father issues. Every single one. Bobby Hundreds, Nick Diamond scott from tendy like every single one has like an issue with their dad and her theory is that if you have an issue with your dad it somehow triggers your mind to want to do streetwear oh wow (laughs) i haven't figured out but like i haven't figured out the seed of why that might be happening but it's uh a lot of them do oh my
0: god (laughs) but i mean it looks like you did good because you know and we'll jump into some of the fashion stuff but you that wasn't really the end goal right because you went to nyu for journalism right i went to nyu for journalism yeah so which is a pretty damn good school so i mean
1: for being a run-of-the-mill you know even
0: steven that's you got in nyu
1: man so okay so just to frame it up this is 1993 okay Mm -hmm. um nyu actually became a good school like in 94 95 they really invested heavy in the early 90s nyu was like um if you were in Jersey, you'll understand this reference. But it was like the Rutgers of Jersey. It was like the state university. Okay. Right? Which it is. But they really tried to gun for Ivy League in the late nineties. And I don't I don't think they're they're not Ivy League for sure. No, they're not. But they they really tried to do it. So they made all these improvements and made admissions much harder and stuff. But my year was like the last year where they were just almost letting kind of anyone in. And I told you my SAT scores already, but you know that um early admissions thing? Yeah. Where like, if you t- check this box, you basically tell NYU, if you accept me, I will reject all other schools that I'm applying to, and I will by contract, like literally signing a contract, I will go to NYU if you accept me. Is right. that still the case? Uh, it's still an option, I think. It's Holy called early hell. admissions, yeah. Okay. And uh, the the urban myth was that like, you know, it literally says when you check that box, Checking this box has no bearing on your improved ability to maybe get into the school. Like, it doesn't help you get into the school. But of course it does. Like, why would they even <laughs> offer that feature? You know what I mean? So the urban myth was that, like, if you checked early admissions, they would, like, earmark your application. Like, like oh, a little dude, this fold. guy's serious. This guy's serious. Like, we already have this money. Yeah. Like, why even fuck around? Move right? it to the serious folder. <laughs> exactly. So I, I got in and, uh, you know. It was. I spent two years. I majored in journalism. Besides uh, going back to the Michael Chang story, the other profession that Asians are quite successful in is on-air journalism. Right, like a TV anchor or announcer. Every oh. every station, whether it's Fox, CBS, NBC, whatever, you have to have one token Asian on there. It's somehow this is makes, like Connie Chung. Yes, the okay. Connie Chung. Phenomenon. Right. Connie Chung was also like my parents. Like you could be con-. every <laughs> night when we watch Connie Chung. This could be you. You could be on TV. Reporting. Connie Chung was was pretty fire. F- Connie Chung's the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually drank that Kool Aid, and I was like, yeah, maybe I could. I-, I actually liked. I was into um creative writing. Okay. And um I didn't see any money in creative writing, but I thought journalism is like the sort of. Sell out version of creative writing. Yeah. Um, where you could just report, write, and then maybe one day get on the air. Um, so I took journalism.
0: So you basically were like, I'm going to journalism school because I'm going to be
1: Connie Chung. Yeah. Literally. And,
0: and obviously, I mean, you have this shift, but it seemed like you were pretty into streetwear, even though like the scene didn't really exist the way yeah. it is now.
1: Yep. I was definitely into this, this subculture that was happening since high school. Um, and The way this subculture looked like, like street culture back in the mid-90s really looked much more like hip-hop, but it was like underground hip-hop, you know? So um, in high school, I would travel to to Manhattan, and I would like buy mixtapes. Like, you know that image of like buying mixtapes out of a trunk of a car? Yeah. Like, I would do that. Like, I would go to people's cars and buy mixtapes out of the trunk. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, um, there'd be like one store, which was called Union. Okay, Union was in West Broadway yeah. back in the day, and that store was so tiny; it was like a shoebox. And you walk in, and they would sell mixtapes, incense, Egyptian oil, and like a couple of T-shirts from like brands you've never heard of. But for some reason, that culture just was so enamoring to me. Like I walked in, and there was this fear of like standing in there because I kind of wanted to be cool enough to to stand in there. And they sort of had this like aggressive like you know stance about them and but like just trying to like be in there and like absorb shit was like so dope to me and that was in high school so i was super into that and no one else in my high school was into it like everyone else in my high school was just gap and abercrombie and fitch you know right and i'd come back with like you know like a a stash t-shirt or like a a project dragon hoodie or something like that and like they'd be like what is that weird shit you're wearing you know um but i love that stuff i loved always being the guy that like was wearing the thing or representing the thing that like no one else had and I would have to school them on it.
0: Right. Yeah. So when is the shift where you drop out of NYU? Then what, what, what when does that take place?
1: Um so I was always working. I've been working since I was 13 years old. Okay. Um and so working through high school, working through college and when I was at NYU, I randomly got a job um at uh a book publishing company, a book design and publishing company. They laid out books and printed books, right? A publishing company. Right. And just, just to give you some idea, like I had no idea at this point in 94, 95, I'm 18, 19 years old. I had no idea that you could make a living doing anything creative whatsoever. Like I, I live for some reason in a very shielded world in New Jersey, like with my parents and like, you know, the, the goals that they had set for me, like being a designer or an artist like it wasn't unfathomable like nothing could that could not be a reality right and um when i got this job it was really a job for data entry it was a data entry clerk job at a design firm this is pretty entry level yeah oh yeah no it's like eight dollars an hour pick up the phone people will call and when they call, you type the message into this system that they have, right? Okay. And because it was a design firm, um, the system that they had me type messages into was Quark Express. And Quark Express oh, is... Oh, I know Quark. Oh, you know Quark. Okay. Yeah, For yeah, those who yeah. don't know Quark, back in the 80s and 90s, every printed piece of thing, magazine, book, whatever, was made using Quark Express. Now that has morphed into Adobe InDesign. Yeah. But back then, Quark Express was the king. And so... I'm typing in voicemail messages in the cork express. Right. And I'm like, why can't I just use word? They're like the, the owner use Yeah, <laughs> the, the owner was awesome. He was like a total design Nazi, like typographic. He's like, Microsoft does not respect designers. You know, like oh we will God. not use any Microsoft office apps here. Um, so he taught me Quark express. Um, and so when I was in there, I was just observing all the other uh, designers that were working there and, you know, type artists and stuff. And I was like, man, they're, they look like they're having like a lot of fun and this is like their full-time jobs. Um, So I started to just get more and more immersed into that company's culture. Uh, They still exist. They're called Noble Desktop Publishers. They're in Soho. Um, And so the owner started to teach me Illustrator and then Photoshop, you know, and then all these other apps. Uh, And so I started to get into it. And then I'd go back to NYU and I'd be like, hey, I want to maybe switch my major. I I want to learn more of this stuff because it definitely hit me in a way that nothing hit me before. Like it, it tugged on my sort of passion strings for the first time, you know? And it was the first time where like, I didn't want to leave work. You know, most kids want to like five o'clock you're out, but I like, I wanted to stay and just play more, but, and I was getting paid to do it. So it was pretty awesome. So I went to NYU and I was like, I want to switch majors. I want to take these classes. And back then NYU didn't offer, there was no design program at NYU. Mm. Um, So I was like, man, I'm paying like a lot of money for this school, you know? and I'm not getting what I want, Like I think I'm going to leave. So right up the block from NYU, 13 blocks away from NYU, is Parsons School of Design. Yeah, there you go. And I'd walk there all the time. A little bit cheaper then, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was about the same because you have to buy school supplies, which are mad expensive. So I took a a chance, and I transferred to Parsons with... (laughs) Man, like, you know, there's a portfolio review when you go into art school. I hadn't drawn or done any art in college at NYU, I, I doodled a little bit in high in high school and middle school. So my portfolio was like childhood doodles. <laughs> that was my that was my portfolio for Parsons. Oh my god! Yeah, so I I transferred to Parsons, uh, and then became a uh, communication design slash graphic design major. Right. Yeah. So I dropped out of NYU uh, after two years, and then went to Parsons, and then eventually. Dropped out of parsons <laughs> so I
0: which is interesting, and I think you know like you, to me you are one of the first people whom had like it feels like from your journey mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that you've done you you kind of go and you get you, you dip your your toe into it per se yeah, and you learn what you need to do, and then you're like, okay, I'm done, I got it, I'm out yes. and you basically
1: are continuing to build that's right that's that's a good observation yeah i don't I don't like to just go through the rigmarole of like, oh, this is a four-year program. Let me just finish the four-year program. No, it's like I've gotten everything I need. Yeah, let me now bounce. And this is, you know, and so
0: staple design is this form around this time? I no. mean, <laughs>
1: or did was it? Is it, it go a little bit later? It went. It went a little bit later. Yeah, I, I transferred to Parsons. Um, the other thing that I, I did of note um, back then was in addition to the job at Noble Desktop Publishers, I got an internship at a company called PNB Nation. Okay. And PNB Nation was unbeknownst to me, like at the time, one of the grandfathers of streetwear. It was, uh, it was a brand owned by four people. Um, one was a Korean American, one was a Chinese Jamaican, one was Jewish, and one was um, Japanese Black. Okay, okay, so, so that's it was a like big the United <laughs> Nations melting pot. Yeah. yeah, and they came from hip hop graffiti roots, but then they had graphic design and and high level design sophistication, which to me is what street culture is. Uh, and they built like one of the first streetwear brands, you know. And I was an intern there, just packing boxes and stuff, but. The owner of that company, his name is Brew McHale. He works at Nike now. Um, he was one of my mentors, and like he just taught me about the idea of of communicating ideas, which is what a designer does. Um, and they just happen to be using like fashion as mm. the medium for that. Other people might make a magazine or might make you know a, a blog or or a uh, you know a podcast, but they were using fashion as the medium for communicating ideas. And I thought that was like so powerful. Um, I still think think the t-shirt is like the most powerful medium that we have as a form of communication. You know, even if you decide that you want to wear a blank t-shirt, you know, you're saying something about yourself. Like every day I take the subway and I look at everyone and everyone made a conscious decision on what it is that they were going to put on their bodies that morning. And that says volumes about them. Even if, even if it's the guy that's like black 501s, black t-shirt, black chucks, mm-hmm. you're still saying a lot about yourself, even though you're trying to be the guy that doesn't say anything about himself with fashion. Interesting. You know. But, of course, the guy that's wearing head-to-toe supreme with hood-by-air pants and fucking, like, you know, kids shoes on, obviously, he's saying a lot about himself, too. But you can't escape it, even if you're nude. <laughs> even if you're nude, you're saying, a lot of, you're saying a ton about yourself if you're nude on the subway. <laughs>
0: Well, wait, let's, hold on, let's talk about the t-shirt for a second. Okay. So what, why do you believe that the, I mean, that I agree, yeah. I, I do think you're saying a lot about
1: yourself by what you wear, but I guess, where did that observation come from? I mean, it, it came from brew, but it also definitely came from living in New York at the time. Like, if you lived in Montana, and you just go from your house to your car to the parking lot to your office, mm-hmm. you maybe interact with like one person on your way to work. Right, We interact with thousands, if not tens of thousands of people on our way to work. And I, yeah. I live 15 blocks away, and I see hundreds of people, right? So every day, you're just like seeing people, and people are seeing you. And again, what you put on and what you represent yourself with is broadcasted out to all these people that you're touching, you know? Um, so by virtue of that, what you put on your body is one of the most powerful mediums because you're just like radiating like a satellite dish out there. <laughs> and it's, it only works in these high-density cities like right. Tokyo and New York. But okay. like, yeah, I get it. If you just go in your car and you just go to work, no one sees you. So it doesn't, it sort of doesn't matter what you put on. But here it's like, you know you're going to be on a subway train with a hundred people. You know you're going to be walking the streets. So you, you want to flex. Even flexing is even like, or it's or too much, but to get like tribal, there is a maybe. there is a subconscious decision making process when you look at your closet. Okay, even if you're totally anti fashion, like even if you're totally against branding and commercialism and materialism, you still are like, I'm going to wear the thing that most represents why I hate fashion. Gotcha. <laughs> you're still into fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. You can't, dude. I'm not I'm into that, around man. Her. I just, I just do this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's fascinating. Like well, I'm, I, you and your brands. Like I just go to Salvation Army and get my. T- you still went to the Salvation Army and you still true. made a decision based on wares, yeah, like wearables. You know, like I love that power. <laughs> I feel like that it's only been magnified
0: even further because of social media. Yeah, you know, and and. I mean, I I don't do this, but I remember there's a few people that I follow. And there's also a few people that I kind of follow so I can, (laughs) I feel like such a jerk saying this, so I can know, like, oh, yeah, don't do that. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And I'm like, why is this person tagging every brand on their clothes? Like, I get it. You're wearing jeans, but, like, you think Levi's is like, yo, guys, come here. This dude over (laughs) here. He's wearing our jeans. Right. (laughs) Get over here.
1: The, The sad fact is that that does happen. Yeah. The companies do do that. Oh, wait. No,
0: really? Oh, Okay, No, that does happen. Well, I'm backpedaling.
1: Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, I know a lot of people that are, um, I guess their job title is like fashion blogger. Okay. Right. And they started out as ostensibly like a nobody and just tagged lots of brands. And they have a decent aesthetic and eye. I'll give them that. But eventually a brand might reach out and be like, hey, we like your aesthetic. Can we send you a pair of 501s? And it's like, score. Yeah, and then like they parlay that into like a whole career and and kudos to those people for being able to do that. That's true.
0: I yeah. mean, even though I'm not wild about some of the methods that people are choosing to get themselves to where they are, they're still busting their ass to get themselves to where they are. And I think that's yeah. That's I respect that. I really right. do, even if I'm not into their style. They're still
1: they're doing it. Exactly. And the the other criticism I might have is that um it's unfortunate that those careers are based on, like, one platform. Mm. Like, it's if Instagram went away, they'd be fucked, <laughs> you know? So, like, I, I urge young people that are really killing it on the gram okay. to, like, diversify and figure out how you can extend beyond Instagram and figure out how to bring your brand to other platforms and, more importantly, into real life. Because... Oh, real life. Are you real saying life? that Instagram is not real life? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Newsflash. Instagram is not real life. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I've had Staple from, I founded Staple in 1997, and it was pre-anything. Like, my business card, my first business card for Staple had my home telephone number on it. Landline. Respect. So no, there wasn't even cell phone technology that was solid enough to put your mobile phone, yeah. you know? Um. And so you go from that to like um, MySpace, blogging, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, you know, like you just keep going, right? Right. If if your brand and your message isn't able to like diversify through all those different mediums, it could have died at any one of those things if it relied too heavily on one of them. You know, if you're like a Vine star, there were Vine stars. There were people making millions of dollars on Vine. And then someone decided Vine's done. It's like, fuck.
0: <laughs> what, right. do, what do those guys do
1: now? You know? I, I don't know. Hopefully they can parlay into being YouTube stars. Yeah. yeah. They're just like, oh man, it's so
0: long. <laughs> I know. How do I feel this? <laughs> Where do oh, I get all this content from? I'll repeat the Vine 50
1: times on YouTube. <laughs> right. Check. Yeah.
0: Every wardrobe needs a good shirt. And for me, a good shirt is all about one thing fit. Does it fit in the shoulders? Is the length right? Collar? Shirts are more complicated than you think. Look, if you want to buy a shirt off the rack like a clown, be my guess. But if you want a custom shirt that fits, you need to check out Proper Cloth. Proper Cloth makes it easy for men to buy custom shirts. And with nearly 10 years in the industry, they're doing it right. With fantastic customer service, helpful measuring guides, and incredible fabrics, Proper Cloth will take care of you and you're going to get a shirt that fits right. I have 4 shirts from Proper Cloth and I can't imagine going anywhere else for shirts again. From my casual button downs to my dressy spread collars, I'm slowly transitioning my entire shirting wardrobe over. Right now, Proper Cloth is offering a special deal for Blammo listeners for $20 off their first purchase. Visit propercloth.com forward slash blammo and use code BLAMO to save $20 on your first shirt. This means you could get a killer custom shirt for under $100 bucks all in. I would start with either a simple blue oxford or their wash denim. You can't go wrong. And with their perfect fit guarantee, if it doesn't fit right, let them know what you want change and they'll alter or remake it for free. So visit propercloth.com forward slash blammo and use code BLAMO to save $20 off on your first shirt. you'd mentioned so you start staple design in 97 yes so then like how does it look from there because to me i didn't really know much about staple mm-hmm. until i knew all about reed space oh interesting. i was all into reed That's space dope. all the chairs on the wall yeah um the fact that you guys had uh like to me that store i moved to new york in 2004 2005 mm-hmm. and i lived on norfolk and Delancey. okay Right around the corner. Oh, yeah. And I remember going into Read Space Uh and seeing everything that I had never seen before that was only in magazines. And I lost my mind. And I was like, oh my God, this is New York. Yeah. I'm like, this is the greatest place on earth. And like, I don't know. I mean, and obviously I'll tell you this now, but like, Read Space epitomized what New York could be or what I could be from New York. Mm. Uh, I wore these oversized glasses and uh in st louis i got called a faggot for wearing them i'll go ahead i'm gonna use that word on the podcast quoted yeah yeah and then in new york i wear it and someone at readspace was like yo man those are those are cool glasses (laughs) and i was like i'm home yeah this is it this and they had these brands i didn't know about all this stuff that was only in japan Mm -hmm. I mean, the vibe of it, it was like, is this an art space? No. Oh, wait, they have an art gallery show later? I'm like, well, wait, but it's a retail store? Oh, there's clothes? Like, what is this? It was home. It yeah. was, it. it is a huge reason why I felt, because I, not only was I into read space, but I was so inspired that I was like, well, maybe I could be a part of this uh-huh. industry
1: contribute in some way to yeah. this
0: community yeah yeah it's like maybe you know okay like well if because they got people who are making art they have people who are making you know air fresheners uh-huh. they have people who, all sorts of stuff yeah. like this is the place to me yeah and so but Reed space that started a few years after yeah. your
1: career that was like 2002 oh no 2001 is when Reed space opened so okay. and staple was 97 um so i mean back then staple was just um i mean the the story goes is like i took a silk screening class in parsons okay and it was a class to learn how to silk screen on paper and as i told you because of my um my sort of undying devotion to the medium of a t-shirt i was like oh this is cool thanks for teaching us how to do this i'm going to silk screen on a t-shirt i'm going to bring in blank shirts and silk screen on that instead and Caesar's like no you can't do that and I was like, this is who? Yeah, I was like, why, why not? It will work. And she's like, no, you can't do it. So I was like, this is stupid. Again, I just get this feeling. I'm like, I'm paying like $25,000 a year tuition. I'm buying the art supplies. I'm paying your salary. I this can't now bring in like a different form of cotton to to print on. It has to be cotton flat paper. Like, I was like, I'm always one of those people that like, I will abide by your rules if they make sense and if they're a win-win. But when you're just blindly following rules you know for the status quo like that's when i challenged that you know so um i teamed up with a friend one other guy in the class and i was like you know what this is bullshit we both (laughs) want to print on tees let's just leave the windows all unlocked after we leave silkscreen class oh my god and then at night we'll come back with tees and then we'll throw them in through the window and climb in through the window and just silkscreen all night long are you serious yeah so So you broke back into school we broke back into school (laughs) With a pillowcase of T-shirts. So we were just like Santa Claus style, pillowcase full of blank tees. Okay. Walked in, threw them into the window, climbed in through the window, and then operated the silkscreen lab all night long. Oh my God. Yeah. And it was awesome. (laughs) So that's where I started printing my first shirts. And the first shirts were really just like art on tees that I was... The sole purpose of it was to give to my friends. That was it. There was no... I'm you weren't be like a brand. i'm a, yeah, yeah no to get rich nope no way like it was like this is fun you know like cuz i was in in the beginning with the paper stuff i was making posters and prints for people just to like give out you know and mm-hmm. maybe a friend will put it up in their apartment but like in 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 the 90s in like new york and you're a student like no one's having cocktail parties in their house like oh 30 people come on over and let's have <laughs> wine in my apartment like that's the size of this office you right. know what i mean so like if you even if you gave someone dope art no one's going to see that ever they don't carry the art around yeah. it's in their home right so i was like t-shirts that's the dopest thing cuz like they'll i'll give it to them they'll wear it and thousands of people will see their chest and then they'll see my art it's there you like go. it's like graffiti but legal graffiti yeah. is like you know you do it on a train thousands of people see the train you might go to jail you might die <laughs> t-shirts is like the safe version of graffiti you just have to break into school that, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Um so yeah, so I, I started printing teas, gave them out to friends. Um fast forward a little bit to March seventh, nineteen ninety-seven, which is my birthday. Okay. I was twenty two years old. I just turned twenty-two. Um And I had a girlfriend at the time, um, and I just dropped her off in Chinatown to get her hair done because it's my birthday. She wants to get her hair done. And it was going to take a few hours. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk around Soho and Chinatown. Right. And I was wearing one of the shirts that I printed at Parsons. Right. So I walk into the Triple Five Soul store on Lafayette and Houston. That was when Triple Five Soul was like the shit. shit. Yeah. The shit. Yeah. Like Honestly, Triple Five Soul was like supreme as today. Yeah. Like the coolest, dopest fucking brand. Right. And so I walked into the store and the manager was like, Yo, that's a dope t shirt. Where'd you get that from? And I was like, Oh, I was like, I made it. <laughs> right. And he was like, Wow. He's like, We can sell them here if you want. I was like, What? He's like, Yeah, make 12 and we'll sell them here. There I was like, go. Bet. And then boom, business was open. Like that was the first commercial transaction of my brand which wasn't even trying to be a brand you know yeah and um at the time my damage rate for making shirts was extremely high so like to get 12 good shirts i probably have to print like 20 and eight would just go to my friends because i'd mess up or like i'd screw up you know the the silkscreen lab at parsons was really made Not for t shirts, which is why I think she didn't want me to print there. (laughs) But like it was just not made for cotton, it was made for paper, you know. So, but we were jerry rigging shit and duct taping and gorilla taping stuff to make it work. Um, So, you know, he'd order 12, I'd print 20, I'd give him the 12 order. And in a week, they sold out. And he's like, Oh, let me get 24. And I was like, All right, cool. I'm still breaking into school. Like, I'm now I have to buy 50 blank shirts, break into school, hopefully get 24 good ones, right? Um, and so like you know, one time I walked in, um, and he asked me, you know, what do you want to call your brand name? And uh, at the time, if you if you remember this era of like hip hop street clothing, uh, the brands that were really killing it then were like Rockaware, Fubu, Peli Peli, and Sean John. Like if you were into hip hop, that was the fashion that was available to you. Echo was another one, right? Right, and it was just like big, oversized, huge logos, very gaudy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was inspired by the same music. I was really inspired by hip hop, but I wasn't into that look. And so I wanted to name the company something that was much more like basic, raw, essential, something that you couldn't live without, like an element that is just like indispensable, like a staple. And I was like, staple. Ding, ding. yeah. And yeah. he's like, all right, cool. And then I remember the next week I walk in, he's like, yo, what's up, Jeff Staple. I'm like, I mean, that's not my name. Like, don't call me that. And he's like, "Why? You're Jeff from Staple. You made up Staple. Like, you're Jeff Staple." I Uh, was like, "No, I am going to call you that." (laughs) I was like, um, "I was like, I, you know, I mentioned Echo, right? Like, yeah, Mark Echo was one of the people that I looked up to because he had built this brand from airbrushing. But I also didn't want to be like a character like that. A rhino." No, I didn't want like to be like uh, Mark Echo is not his real name. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And if if Echo, this is what I thought back then. I was like, if Echo were to ever fall apart, he's just Mark Echo forever, and he's tied to that debacle. And in fact, that is what ended up happening. Yeah, <laughs> like it fell apart, and he had to he he fought his whole career to separate himself from that. Right. You know. So I was like, don't call me Jeff Staple. He kept calling me that, and it stuck. And of course now. That's what people. I mean, yeah, think you're
0: you're kind of Jeff Staple.
1: I am kind of. So it's like I have to, <laughs> I have to constantly, you know, make sure Staple is held in high regard. <laughs> no, well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, there's the incentive to just always be busting
0: your ass. Yeah.
1: Um, I so, mean, because
0: then you evolve like crazy. I mean, next thing you know, and and I'm just gonna fast forward a little bit yeah. here for the sake of time. You are collaborating with brands. Yeah. And people are starting to take notice, and then because you're in the scene you're you know at least for me Mm -hmm. you're you're like the de facto leader you know i mean i was thinking i was like okay i mean like jeff staples like that's the streetwear dude Mm -hmm. and i think right around the time that i moved here i remember the the freaking riot for Mm -hmm. your shoes yeah and like also at the time because i thought i was super cool i'm not (laughs) but i was like yeah i'm really cool and i was like oh i don't wear nikes you know i only wear uh spring
1: courts or whatever like some
0: some shoe that i could you know and there was a a freaking riot like for your shoes at read space yeah yeah it's because you you released these shoes and i remember i think a friend of mine was working there this guy named morgan
1: yeah morgan yep yeah he was
0: the manager and um and i was and he was like yo you know he's like we're doing these shoes we're doing and i was just like that's that was nuts yeah and so like but i think you are, I mean, obviously there's talent, there's your drive, there's all this stuff that made up, um, you know, like stable design and then this, this world. Mm-hmm. But I think it was like this perfect mixture of also how the world was starting to get more into streetwear. Yeah, And like, it was you, you were kind of at the center of it all because then shoes at least for me, mm-hmm. I'm like, why are these a big deal? I remember I went into Supreme. This is when you could just walk in there. yeah. And I bought the, they were called like the meatball dunks. Uh-huh. And they were like patent leather and they had like chili pepper things <laughs> that were hanging at the end, yeah. but it was like the Italian sort of thing. And I remember I wore them and I was working at Apple and someone was like, dude, why are you wearing those shoes? Like you should put those on ice. And I was like, no, man, these are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But like. It was the birth of. Yeah. It was yeah. definitely like all of these. Things happening with like fashion and music and sneaker culture. And that was you. Uh, it wasn't me. It was well, you, I was a the, big, I was, big part of that. I was able to revolve around these planets all together. You know, like a lot of people don't know that I designed like the first 20 issues of the Fader magazine and I designed album covers for Raucous Records, which was Most Deaf, Talib Kwali, Common, like Company Flow, you know, like, and so it was hip hop. It was, fashion, music, culture. It was sneaker. I was a sneaker head since I was six years old, which we didn't even touch upon, but I've been a Nike head for a really long time. And then fashion as well with the staple clothing line and retail, like this sort of new, um, retail experience that you described, which was like, what's typically now called just like lifestyle boutique retail. Yeah. Back then it was like, people were like, what the hell is this space? Yeah. You know, that was the number one question we got. We got, And so if you add up all of those things, it makes it feel like I'm the inventor of streetwear. But actually, I was just revolving around the right circles at the right time.
0: Well, that's a very humble of you. I'm just going to disagree and still say that you're, <laughs> that you're behind it. But that's, yeah. And I I've totally looked up to you. And, you, like, you were the, just this, you know, this person, like, up on a pedestal that was you know, sort of dictating like stuff that was going to be hot and stuff that wasn't. Cause the in, you know, I didn't know about, <laughs> yeah. you know, Hype Beast didn't really exist at the time. Right. None of these places exist at the time. And you were also, cause I remember you were writing articles mm-hmm. and I think you had done an article about Japan. Yes. For the and, fader. Y- yeah. For the fader. Yeah. And I remember reading it and I was like, What's Japan? I mean, obviously, I knew the country, but I was like, wait, what's going on over there? Yeah. Because I thought I was so cool just because I would walk into read space and I would buy weird things. But like, I think you did something on Hiroshi Fujiwara.
1: Yeah. It was the first US press on Hiroshi Fujiwara.
0: Yeah. And that, I was like, who is this person? What is Harajuku?
1: imagine me trying to convince the publishers of The Fader. I was like, guys, there's this thing happening where like Nike in Japan is releasing shoes in very limited quantities. And they're like, okay. I'm like, and people in America, some people here are ch- are like exporting them here and charging like two, three times, right. you know, the value of them. And they're like, no way. And it's so <laughs> funny to say that now because it's like so cu- – like everyone understands StockX and GOAT and yeah. Stadium Goods and Flight Club and – lineups but like back then I'm trying to explain the birth of what I'm seeing happening and they're like okay what do you want to do I was like I want to go to Japan I want you to fly me out to Japan I want to talk to Nike Japan and ask them why you're doing this you're releasing a shoe in the quantity of 50 you know they're hot why don't you make 5,000 You're Nike yeah I want to get to the bottom of this and they're like okay go so that's it I went to Japan and I got this story I talked to Nike Japan talked to Hiroshi Fujiwara and that was probably for a lot of people the first time they saw anything like this in a us publication yeah i mean it was it was mind blowing to me <laughs> shout out to journalism school at nyu for <laughs> yeah, a little there bit you, you go, know, right? like a little help there from journalism i mean
0: i mean again the kind of going back to like you just picking up all these different tools for your belt of yeah you know i mean that
1: cuz that yeah. that was a great article yeah and i i think one thing that i'd like to emphasize is even though the perception might have been that like i was architecting this whole thing and like sort of, you know, creating and manifesting this culture to happen, I was always really just more so in love with the work itself. Mm -hmm. Like the process of getting that article done or the designing of it, like that's what I was really addicted to, not the exterior facing viewpoint of what it might've looked like, you know? So that is to say like the fame of it, I was not ever into it. I was very actually uncomfortable with that. But it was really just like if I could just go to work every day and people don't know who I am or what I do and I could just anonymously do my job, I would much prefer that than like, you know, sort of becoming a face of the culture. But that by saying that, I've accepted my role in -hmm. in this industry and that, you know, there's not a lot of people that can speak on the history of this like 20 years deep, 25, 30 years deep um and if if someone's going to do it then hell I'll do it you know yeah yeah and i think what's great too
0: is you know i mean a lot of this i'm trying to get you to like almost take ownership for all this stuff that you've done and it's what's great is like you're super humble about it and i think going back to right when we first started talking i think that's why you have stayed not just relevant but stayed really highly respected amongst everyone in this industry because I'm sure there were many opportunities where you could have just like taken more money or take or done some bigger partnership. And, you know, I'm going to air quote, like sell out here, mm-hmm. but you didn't. And I think the industry itself, I mean, the, the bullshit, you know, detector is, is pretty high. Yes. And so people have been like, okay, like Jeff's only doing stuff that he really cares about and that yeah. he really respects. And so because of that, you build a history that's like three times longer, you know, or yeah. that, that you want to do. And yeah. I think that's really,
1: that's really special. Thanks. It's it's tough to maintain relevancy in this culture that is like, it's literally born on the idea of what's next. Yeah. You know. Yeah, people are just like, oh, that stuff's <laughs> over. I'm like, wait, no, it's not. Yeah, I just got I into it. <laughs> Whether it's shoes or clothes or music, like I feel bad for musicians nowadays. They oh, dude. put their heart and soul into a song. It's like, yeah, that's my ringtone now. All right, what's next? Yeah. It's like you just turned my year-long <laughs> song into a ringtone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you know how much work went into yeah.
1: that? Um, well, that brings me to
0: one of the things I want to talk about. Uh about so you started a pod, yeah, which obviously we'll plug on this called The Business of Hype. Yes. Which is Amazing. Thanks. And actually, you, you did an episode with Hiroshi Fujiwara. Yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, which was amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cool because, I mean, I won't spoil the whole episode, but mm. you do ask. Uh, one of the things I like about the pod in general is you get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Like you're talking about people's financial abilities
1: like like how much real estate they own and all
0: sorts of shit. Yeah yeah. which is the
1: business of it. Which is
0: kind of an almost a (laughs)
1: no-no. Totally. Of like, well don't talk to people about money. Yeah. That was the purpose of the podcast. I mean I spent the last three to five years of my career like thinking you you mentioned mentorship before, right? Yeah. And I was like, you know, if I'm gonna be the older guy in the room of like a bunch (laughs) of young kids, the very least I could do is pass on some information to like help them out, you know?
0: Why why do you feel that you need to do that? Just out of
1: curiosity. Um, Selfishly, I'll tell you the real reason. Okay. Some people think I'm very like nice and philanthropic and like giving of my knowledge, which I am. Okay. The reason why I do it though is because I can't be the only successful guy in the industry. Like I need an entire industry to rise up so that there is a like fruitful economy to be based off of. You know, like street culture, I can't be the only streetwear brand. Right. You know, so it's important for me that 10 years from now, there is thousands, if not tens of thousands of streetwear brands. And Staple is hopefully one of them and hopefully one of the top ones, too. Yeah. But there's this whole, like, thriving economy. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter if I'm just one man on an island killing it. That's fair. Yeah. So it's, it's selfish, for sure. Like, I need an economy. I need you. I need you to start a brand and get it to a couple million dollars. So that there's retailers that can buy our brands and they can make a couple million dollars, and there's, this, there's a, a blog that's based on covering us, and they're making a couple million dollars, right. and there's this whole economy, that's how it works, you know? yeah. It doesn't work when you're like the number one ceramic basket weaver in the world, you know like <laughs> right, great, but like, you know you need an industry, so that's why I, I do that. Um, and I think you know, it took me 20 years if I can share. Five nuggets of information that makes it so that it takes you three years mm-hmm. to get to my same place, that's amazing. That's what I need. I need you to accelerate beyond me. Mm. Yeah, and I, I firmly believe that. Um, so the business of hype was was born from that same idea where it's like a lot of the interviews that I, I listen to and I I watch online, it's and I get interviewed a lot. And yeah. they tend to always ask me like very similar questions passion hunting, why do you do it, quit your job, you know, like, do what you love, which is very important. But it's also like, okay, that's like the surface. Like, now that I've quit my job, and I've decided to follow my passion. Now it gets down to like, you know, big boy time. Yeah, right. Like, can you pay your bills? Yeah. Yeah. Like, do I need a lawyer? Like, you know, what if I get sued? Like, does that do I have to give these guys benefits? Or can I not? Or like, do I even need to hire an employee? Like, is, are they 1099 or are they w2 like you know all of these things that could really trip you up you know along your path i'm trying to interview people that have gone through this or that are going through this and ask them these like important questions and the one you mentioned in particular hiroshi he's such a mysterious guy yes but he's so he's like probably the most famous unknown person in our industry like everyone can name drop him and everyone knows his logo but No one can, no one knows what he actually does, you know. (laughs) And since that interview I did for the fader way back when, we've developed this really strong friendship. Um, and I think there's a level of trust with a lot of people that I interview that when we're talking, it's like it's mano a mano, like it's we're mates, we're going through the same shit. So, like, you know, yesterday I just had a long conversation with um. I won't say his name because I don't want to put him out there, but like an artist friend of mine who's very, very, very successful. And we had like an hour long conversation about whether to get whole life or term life insurance. (laughs) I shit you not. (laughs) I can show you the thread. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whole life? For real? Not not term? I'm like, nah, son. Gotta go whole life. Oh, really? See, I'm in camp term. (laughs) But. but anyway, these covers are like, it's like people who aren't hypies so are like, what? That's what they're talking about? You know, like, yes, that's what we talk about. Like, this is some adult
0: shit. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's funny because I feel like that's the stuff, you know, I mean, I'm sure, life insurance, but uh, <laughs> employees, trademarks, lawyers, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this isn't belittling anyone, but I feel like anyone can be like, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. But this the people that people talk about and that are successful are the ones who are able to take the idea and then actually
1: yeah and then live off of it execute off of it live off of it and then the the gold standard goal is sure you can live off of it but now can you have your assistant also live off of it and right. thrive off of it right. that's just one employee now I have 15 20 people i've have, i've have employees with kids like three kids and a house and a mortgage in new jersey like, they're living off of this shit that I built. That, to me, is, like, the sickest, craziest, mind-blowing accomplishment that this kid who broke into Silkscreen Lab, right, <laughs> to make T-shirts now has, like, it's, like, supporting families, you know? So do you ever, I mean, obviously, you were talking about
0: uh, having this good relationship with your mom. Is, would she still prefer you to be a
1: lawyer or a Kanye Now Chun? my mom is super stoked on my career. <laughs> okay. Because now it's, like, because of, I think, I think because of really sneaker culture, it, like we, we designed one of the most historic shoes of all time with that Nike pigeon dunk. Yeah. Which is like, fine. That's cool. But it wouldn't mean anything if sneaker culture today wasn't where it is. And sneaker culture today is like fucking pop culture. Like it's, it's, it's mainstream as fuck. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And so if you get into sneaker culture today, which I know a lot of people like just this year started collecting shoes mm-hmm. right for the first time they're going to start doing their homework on the history of it and then eventually probably within an hour they're going to learn about the nike pigeon dung yeah. so like now it's become this mainstream thing where like my mom will be on a flight and you know she'll start talking to the stranger next to them, and they'll just be like you're the mother of jeff stable who did the <laughs> nike pigeon dung and so she's so like <laughs> proud and stoked now like people at her office like in hr and in like in it department are like fans of me that's awesome. Yeah. So she's like super stoked now. So with all that stuff, I mean, do you feel that you have
0: to work harder? Because like you were saying that you are kind of, obviously you're, you're on a team, but yeah. do you feel that you have to push yourself even further because people are kind of counting on you? No. <laughs> yeah? Well, no. well, at least you're I'm, at, I'm at the point in my <laughs> life
1: now where, honestly, I can't work any harder. Okay. Yeah. So you feel well it doesn't matter you're already doing it. I'm it's, I'm such a productivity efficiency life hacker. Okay, that like every single minute and second of my day is fully maximized and the only way to get more out of me is to invent cloning. That's okay. the only way, right? So I'm old now. Like I'm in my 40s. I'm 43 now, okay. right? And I'm married. And, like, now I'm at the point in my life where I have to figure out how to um, free myself and take up, like, get less busy so that I can think more on, like, a 30,000-foot level, you know? I'll give you, like, um, I have a lot of chef friends, so I'll give you, like, a cooking analogy. Okay. I need to figure out how to, like, get out of cooking every dish and doing the dishes so that I can, like, think of the next restaurant. Okay. You know what I mean? So... That brings
0: me to one of the last questions. So, if you die, yeah, what happens to this place? Who, who, who do you know, or who is here? You don't have to say the name out. Yeah, but like, is there someone that you feel that you've mentored enough that you're like, yeah, they know what they're doing?
1: Oh, that's a great question. And you know what the beautiful thing is? If I die tomorrow, everyone in this office right now could run this company without me. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's probably like one of the, my most proudest things. Is that like. Everything that I've built up, not only did I build up like great ideas and great designs and great drops and shit, yeah. but I, more importantly, I built up the infrastructure and the formula so that all of these people would be like, this is the way Jeff would have done it. And this is the formula of how he did it. It's in a Google Doc, it's in an Excel spreadsheet somewhere. Sure. And like you can follow it now.
0: So, I mean, dude, who cares about shoes then? If you're able to do something like that, that's a real legacy. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. That's what I'm most proud of. And I could, I say this all the time to my wife. She hates it when I say it, but like I could literally die tomorrow and it'd be totally fine. Or not even die tomorrow. Like a doctor could tell me, "Yeah, you have 24 hours to live," and I'd be like, "Yeah, cool, <laughs> totally cool." Like, yo, I've I've lived some amazing lives in this 43 years, right. and I'm so satisfied. It's beyond my wildest dreams. The people that I've met and and you know, like the experiences that I've had. That like I feel like I've actually robbed others of their lives. That's how good my life is.
0: That's fantastic. I, I don't think there's anyone I've talked to who could say what you just said. Really? Yeah. And I mean, you talk that. to
1: some like. I talked to some dope people. Yeah. No, I'm done. Like, I'm so, like, everything from like 30 years old on has been gravies and cherries on
0: top. Yeah. yeah. And I just, just so the listeners understand, I'm not wishing anyone die or ill will towards <laughs> no. anyone. But it's, I, it, this is more of a question about like, you know, how proud are you of what you've done? And, and, do you feel that you did it, you know? Yeah. Well, again, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for being on this. Yeah, man, uh, I mean, we
1: could go on for hours. But... I know, I know. <laughs> I'm,
0: I was trying to, you know, for the sake of time, be, be respectful. And thank here. you
1: for what you said about ReadSpace. That was, that was really the goal of, of Read, and it was, an, it was an unconventional business plan to do that, but how it affected you is the exact ROI that we were looking for for people who came to Read.
0: Well, you won. Thanks, Congrats. man. Congrats. Thanks so much for talking. Yeah,
1: thank you. you.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's tons more to listen to at blamopod.com. Listen to Blammo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, tell a friend and leave a review. It helps let others discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at blamopodcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again for listening. See you all next week.